It's Rick Jones of Fishbait Solutions coming to you from the bridge. Welcome to our special Christmas week show all about giving back. My special guest is my old friend Paula Bearson, the CEO of Social Capital, one of the premier cause marketing agencies in the world. We'll talk about her extraordinary career and the great things her agency is doing today. We'll get back up on the soapbox and talk about a great Christmas meal on the road with Rick. The gifts are wrapped, the sleigh is packed, the turkey's in the oven, and we're heading to the Christmas Island today from the bridge. I have to admit it, I absolutely love Christmas. As a Christian, it's the time of the year we celebrate the birth of the Christ child when Almighty God humbled himself and came to earth as an infant human being. I love our nativity scenes we've brought from places around the world. We have a very special pewter one. My wife had a business several years ago, a low country lifestyle business, and she found one of the last of the pewter smiths in South Carolina, a guy named Colonel William Felder, who's since passed away. But he made and gave to us a beautiful pewter nativity scene that we put out every year in a special place. I love the Christmas Eve candlelight service at our church, John Wesley United Methodist Church. This year, because we all have, uh, we have all three of our grandboys here for Christmas. Uh, So we'll be going to the children's Christmas Eve service and then enjoying their favorite Christmas Eve meal. That, of course, would be pizza, which is their favorite meal every day. Um, I also love the Midnight Mass at St. Philip's Church in downtown Charleston. There's something about going to Midnight Mass that you enter before Christmas Day and you come out to the bells ringing on Christmas morning. I just love that particular service. I love the great Christmas hymns like Silent Night. For believers and non-believers alike, you have to admit that the servant leadership style and practices of Jesus is an example of the way all of us human beings should live our lives. I'm also partial to another servant leader, that wonderful man from the North Pole, Santa Claus, or as they call him in England, Father Christmas, or Papa Noel, or Saint Nicholas. Who else spends his entire year making things to give away to others? He's another perfect role model for the season and for any and every season. I have a very large collection of Santas, which we pull out in late November, right after Thanksgiving, and put out all over the house. Yes, Santa is definitely one of my heroes. Nothing I know of exhibits the spirit of Christmas and giving like the short story from O. Henry, The Gift of the Magi. We've talked about that before. Remember, that's the story of the young couple that are very, very poor, living in a tenement house, no, don't have any money to buy anything for Christmas. The the girl has beautiful long hair that her husband loves. It's her most treasured possession. Her husband, on the other hand, has a pocket watch given to him by his grandfather that's his most prized possession. And we know what happens. Uh, the young lady goes out and she cuts her hair and sells her precious hair in order to buy her husband a chain for his watch. What does the husband do? He sells the watch to buy combs for the for the wife. It's the ultimate 
uh, gift of sacrifice. I'm going to read the last bit of the gift of the Magi that I think is really, really good. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such are they are wisest. Everywhere, they are wisest. They are the Magi. What a great and timeless book for the season. If you haven't read The Gift of the Magi, you need to go out and get it and read it. As many of you know, I also wrote a little book a couple years ago called The Business Tithe. It's an electronic-only book, and I'm happy to send it to you for free if you'd like to read it. Just send me your email address to Rick at fishbaitsolutions.com, and I'll send you a copy. The premise of the book is that profitable business have a responsibility to give back to the communities they serve. And I encourage you to do what we do at Fishbait Solutions and donate 10% of your company's profits to a charity or to a cause. My theory is that if every privately held company in America would practice the business tithe, then we wouldn't need government assistance. We'd really be a society of the people for the people. And wouldn't that be a great thing for all of us? Speaking of someone who's doing great things with her agency, my guest is Paula Bears. And Paula and I have been friends for a long, long time, dating back to her time at IEG. Paula, along with her husband, Mark, is the co-founder of Social Capital, where Paula serves as the CEO. They have offices in Chicago and Washington, D.C. Her clients are a who's who list of charities, including the United Way, the American Red Cross, Special Olympics, Girl Scouts, and many others. They also work with one of our uh, charities that we work with, the V Foundation for Cancer Research. Let's welcome Paula to the bridge. Paula, welcome to The Bridge. Thank you. Well, I'm excited about having you on this morning. This is our annual Christmas show, and we're talking a lot about giving back, and I can't think of anybody that can talk about that better than you. So talk a little bit about your background. I always like to start with all my guests. You know, where'd you grow up, uh, hometown, where you went to school, and how you started your journey professionally? Okay, so I'm happy to be here with you, Rick. I feel like it is going down memory lane. I was born in Youngstown, Ohio. I grew up in Ithaca, New York. Um, I'm going to just share a little bit of background about my sports background because I think that's our connection and part of the thread of my life. Um, But I always loved sports, and I played 
sports pre-Title IX in Ithaca. And I was, um, they didn't have like any girls team. So I was on the boys track team in junior high and in um, high school. Then isn't, that finally, am- isn't that amazing? I mean, yeah, and, no, and I, just I in your lifetime that we didn't have any women's sports. Yeah. And so you have to go compete on the boys team. That's That's wild. Yeah, and I I feel like I owe my career to sports, so I I like starting there. And I also look back with, um, you know, nothing but gratitude and opportunity. Also, I feel like it gave me a lot of the lessons in life, um, which is why I think sports is so um, predominant now and sort of coming through as the world is looking at making the world a better place. And we're seeing lots of, um, you know, athletes and leaders in sports mix over to the cause world, which is part of the theme of what I know we're going to be talking about today. Um, but I was, you know, back in the day when I was, you know, in high school, I was on like three different um, varsity teams, which was it's like, you need to be on so many, you know, it, it was like club sports or even less than, but it was just scrappy and what sports were back in the day. And when I went to college, so, so that was Ithaca high school. And then I went to college at Indiana university and, um, was wanted to play soccer and, um, was on the founding women's soccer team, which they had no soccer team. The the, actually, the guys on the men's soccer team helped coach us, and we started the first soccer team. And now, as you know, it's a powerhouse. Yeah, and absolutely. Yep. So anyways, it's kind of gone full circle because I always wondered if they were going to find me and ask me for donations. <laughs> but they actually reached out to our team recently, and they decided to make us full-on varsity, like on like from – because – they didn't have it in the day, and they're recognizing our team for founding it, which well, is so yeah, cool. Yeah, that's so cool. We had Debbie Antonelli yeah. on a couple of weeks ago. and Oh, my talked God. To, we talked about it, it was our show on Title IX, and uh, then 2022 is the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And so right. I think a lot of schools are going to do really unique things to honor the pioneers. And and clearly, y'all were the pioneer. Uh And uh, I find that ironic or interesting that the, the men's players actually wanted to help you guys and 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 coach you and be part of that which I, I, yeah. I you know I think it's is a great lesson for everybody it it really you know looking back um but like coach Yeagley was the coach back then and he he was pretty generous in terms of being supportive and you know it it just was it wasn't a big deal back then but it's sort of looking back it's it's kind of cool that it happened and Anyways, I, I really love sports, and I I realized early on that I'd never be, <laughs> like, an Olympic athlete, but I could always, like, work in sports. So in in college, I, I attribute Indiana U- University and my pretty much school activities to help me get my career, and one of the organizations that I was on was something called the IU Student Athletic Board. And it's where you pretty much promoted the college sports. And so I was in charge of homecoming. I never went to a homecoming before. I wasn't like a real Ray Raw person, but I got this huge experience to organize like sports. In a way, it was my first introduction to sports marketing. And they assigned you to a team. And so 
I was assigned to promote track and field and I got to know Sam Bell, who was the beloved track coach back then. I don't know if you ever knew him, but he was a beautiful person and he was so encouraging to me. And literally I got my first job because of coach Bell. Um, My first job out of school was, you know, I studied business at Indiana university, but it was really my sports activities that got me into my first job which was at Pepsi in the sports marketing department before sports marketing was a thing and I worked for them promoting their um they they were managing or sponsoring track and field and they actually sponsored the first um cash prize event back in the day and anyways I got the job because coach knew the folks at Pepsi and helped me get the job there and so um, that's really what launched my career. You know, it's interesting. I tell a lot of young people, you have to know someone to get a job. You have to know something to keep it, <laughs> but you, you have to know somebody. And I, I find it gratifying to hear because you're one of many people that, that Coach Bell helped. And many coaches have done that over the years, have helped people and reached out, made a call on behalf of people. And I try to do that now, too with young people. If I know somebody's talented and they want to go a certain direction, I'll call somebody and say, Hey, just, you know, I won't say you ought to hire this person, but I'll say you ought to interview this person. Um, and, um, and sometimes it works out. So that's, that's, that's a great story. Now, were you in the purchase office, uh, in New York? Yeah. Yeah. That was in purchase. Yes. Wow. Yeah, it was it was like amazing. It was just like the dream job. And, you know, really what I was doing was hanging banners <laughs> pretty much. You know, like this is my first well, job well, that, out of school. That, that, that was sports marketing in that era. I was right? so we're all proud. banner hangers. Exactly. Honest yes, to God, yes, yeah. hanging those banners. <laughs> I was literally so proud. It was the coolest job on earth, you know. And I look back now and it was all about signage. You know, literally my job was to make sure that the Pepsi signs got in the photography or the, you know, the video. And it was it was back in the day when Pepsi had a lot of um, money and support behind it and they were pretty ahead of the game. So it was it was a great opportunity. Um, I worked for a woman named Kathy Griffin, who was just fantastic. And she she. She and I got to know each, stayed close all these years and were real involved in the Women's Sports Foundation later on. Um, But anyway, so I got this opportunity at Pepsi. And then I also, I had always wanted to have my ski chapter because I never, I never took like a year off or anything (laughs) I wanted to. And I always loved the Olympics and I had this opportunity to um, apply for a position with the Olympics. And after Pepsi, I, um, went to Colorado Springs when they were first literally building the Olympic center out there. And I, I worked for, I became the executive director of one of the newest Olympic sports synchronized swimming. And I of course had never done synchronized swimming. I didn't know from synchronized swimming, but they didn't have, you know, as, uh, that's when the amateur sports act happened and they were breaking up the, um, AU and forming these individual governing bodies and they didn't have a lot of money. So they hired somebody like me who was pretty young and limited experience. Um, and I was the executive director for this Olympic sport. So I did that for six years and raised a lot of money for them. 
and help them get different exposure. It was really my first entree into um, the other side of sponsorship, like trying to sell. And I was able to get like a contract with ESPN. I got McDonald's as a sponsor. I got Elizabeth Arden as a sponsor. And then um, that was like for um, six years. And then the sport of rowing, which is kind of like the oldest sport, not the newest sport in the Olympics, really were at a time where they really needed financial stability. And so they brought me in as their executive director. And I ended up, you know, raising a lot of money through sponsorship for them and helping, you know, build more financial stability. And both were like amazing opportunities because I was super young at the time. I learned a lot, you know, made a lot of mistakes, but got to really grow a lot because there weren't a lot of guardrails. So that was that was an amazing opportunity. And it was really going from the sports sponsorship side to the sports, you know, generating sponsorship side. Well, I, I, I get a lot of, you know, like you probably do. I get a lot of um, resumes from young people and they'll say, I have five years of experience. And I'll say, well, you really have one year of experience repeated five times. And, mm. and you don't want that. And so you think about your path. You go from, all right, I'm going to work on the brand first. Well, really, I'm going to work at a, at a college and organize events. Number two, I'm going to work on a brand. Now, number three, I'm going to work on a property. Then where'd you go? So then, you know, I, um, I had been in um, with the Olympics. I started out in Colorado Springs, but I had... Um, I got a, I got a grant from the Lilly Endowment for synchronized swimming, and that was when Indianapolis was trying to become the sports capital of the the, the country. And when I um, got to, I, in order to get that, the Lilly Endowment said that I had to relocate with the organization. So I ended up having to relocate to Indianapolis, which. Um, was an amazing chapter, but I was also at the point where I had been, and then U U.S. Rowing relocated there. And I share all this because part of, um, after 12 years of being in um, sports and in Indianapolis, I traveled all the time, but I was at the point where um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to actually, for the first time in my life, move somewhere where I had more um, social connection. And Indianapolis is an amazing place. But back at the time when I was there, it was, um, I call, lived downtown. They, yeah, they called it Indiana No Place. Yeah, uh, and it, yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to knock it because it's, it's like an amazing place, you know, if you have a family and everything. But for me, I was just at a point where I wanted to have a bigger city chapter. So I really, I relocate, and I, this is like, I know you have an audience of a lot, some students that are sort of looking for their career. Back in our day, we made decisions. I never thought about like my personal life or where I was going to be. I just like followed my career. And it was the first time I thought, well, I, I need to make a change. And I decided to um, consult. And so I moved to Chicago and I got a job with a company and that's where we met IEG. And they were essentially a publishing company and had the sports and uh, they had the newsletter on sports, entertainment, arts and causes. And so I started um, the consulting division where we were advising the properties, the ones seeking sponsorship, as well as advising 
corporate um, sponsors. And so that that sort of led me to Chicago. And um, I had worked with and I worked with IEG for 12 years, pretty much building the consulting business and really being able to sort of expand beyond the Olympics and sort of looking at all sports, both the amateur professional did a lot of work in motorsports, just everything across the board. And then, you know, as well as um, entertainment causes and everything, you know, including some social causes or nonprofits. But a big part of it was more the sports and entertainment. And over the years, what happened for me is that, you know, I, I woke, you know, I started my career just loving sports marketing. And I woke up at some point and said, I really felt like there was, um, my heart was more with causes. And I also felt like there was an opportunity with a nonprofit, with the nonprofits. And I really thought, well, I'm just going to take everything I learned from sports marketing and flip the switch to cause marketing. And I started after 12 years, um, my own business. Um, I co-founded it with um, my husband, Mark Berrison, who um, was super supportive. And, um, you know, I just basically had this idea to start a business where I took everything I learned and applied it just to causes. So social capital has been around for 20 years now. And we work with the top, you know, national and global nonprofits and their partners to help grow um, sustainable revenue, but ultimately everything is to grow their impact. And it's all tied back to how to take the principles of sports marketing and everything I learned and build, build more, essentially more social impact. You know, I want to go back to some of your stories that you've talked about. Number one, when you went to Pepsi, that was almost like getting a master's degree in sponsorship. I mean, you, you know, you got to get in there, not only do things, but listen, watch, with someone that was experimenting and doing things that, you know, you, 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 we laughingly say you were hanging banners, but Pepsi got to be a little bit more sophisticated during that time. I did a show a couple of years ago entitled everything I know about sponsorship. I learned at IEG. Um, and, and it's true. I mean, I was like a sponge there and we got to be really good friends, but I, I would come every year. One of the things that always amazed me was you would have these big shot, speakers come in and then they would leave. And I was like, man, you ought to just stick around and go to a round table <laughs> or, or you ought to stick around and go to a workshop because you'll learn so much. And I still have literally every one of my IEG notebooks um, in a file where I just made note after note after note. So in a weird sort of way, your time at, at IEG was now getting your PhD <laughs> in sponsorship because you got to do so many, so many different things. And I, I want to remind our audience a little bit about Indianapolis. They did a study on Indianapolis. A consulting company came in, and, and they came to them and said, we have some good news and some bad news. They said, the, the good news is nobody says anything bad about Indianapolis. The bad news is no one says anything at all about Indianapolis. And, and, and that is what led to the sports strategy. Um, and, you know, Jack Schwarbrook, who's now the AD at, at Notre Dame, was a young attorney who was very instrumental in that time in relocating a bunch of uh, NGBs um, 
into uh, Indianapolis. So I look at your career, you, you were like on the cutting edge of so many things, if you think about it. I mean, uh, you, you know, you, 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 you're on the cutting edge of being a, a women's athlete at the collegiate level. You're on the cutting edge of sports marketing at Pepsi. You're on the cutting edge of an NGB. And then you're on really the cutting edge at IEG. And then you took all that and you were way, way ahead of everybody in terms of cause marketing. That's pretty fascinating. Well, first of all, I'm glad you brought up Jack Swarbrick. He was a real mentor and um, it's so cool where he is right now at Notre Dame. But um, Indianapolis, it, it is kind of, I feel like, um, I feel like I was the last one of all my friends to get a job because I wanted to do sports marketing and it wasn't a thing. And I, I just held out until I found the right thing. And I, I really feel like, um, that there's no wrong path. Um, and, uh, it's a real privileged thing to say, just, you know, follow your, you know, what you want to do. Cause it's not like everybody has the same set of opportunities, but, um, I do believe that, um, I, I, I believe every path leads you to where you're supposed to go. It is true. I feel like my path has been very scrappy when I was in college at IU, the right thing to do would be to go, um, out of business school and get, a job at PNG. And I remember at the time thinking, I, I, I just, that was too structured for me. Well, now I look, you know, I look at PNG, who is like such an amazing company and Mark Pritchard, who's one of the most amazing humans on earth, who's their chief brand officer and has spoken at our conference. They're doing so much to change the world. I actually think, oh God, if I did that path, I probably would have been happy too. But either way, I feel like the the road less traveled or the scrappy path worked for me. And I do think it's okay not to, you know, follow what everybody else is doing. And as long as you, you know, use the opportunities. And it's funny that you say you, um, you learned a lot at IEG. Like Rick, you were a speaker there every year because you taught so much. There was so much everybody learns from you. And I was listening to your last podcast. I'm like, this guy is so amazing. We learned so much from you over the years and you really are one of our philosophers in the industry. So I think the other thing in talking to you that really hits me is that I, I do feel like half the thing, thing is that you pay attention. Like when I was hanging banners or whatever you're doing, it is looking around and saying, what does this all mean? And, and, and putting two and two together and saying, how does that apply? And I think one of the best gifts that I got in my career was having to make those critical connections and just try and, um, one, learn the way, but also say, you know, what does it mean and putting sort of some new paths together? Well, I don't know what you do with your clients, <clears throat> you know, today in terms of getting them started, but one of the things I think none of us do enough of is think. And what I loved about IEG was for three days, I would just go think. And, you know, and I had a rule. I'm not calling the office. I'm not dealing with a crisis. I'm, I'll, I'll be back 
you know, Wednesday night. <laughs> and we'll get back at it on Thursday. But from, you know, Sunday afternoon to Wednesday afternoon, I'm going to sit and think. And I, I don't think we do enough of that. And I think, you know, when you look at, and y'all have such a deep number of corporate, I mean, of, uh, of property clients in the call space. You have some of the leading charities out there. I mean, do you do you do you have them kind of like pause and kind of think about where they might go versus what they're doing right now? Is that part of your process? Yeah, so I I think that's right. I think everybody is looking for the the roadmap or sort of almost like here's the blueprint. And um, I think one of the things I've learned over the years is um, there are disciplined ways to approach a client. Um, we do an internal look at everything they do. Where's the money coming from? Follow the numbers. What's the data that, cause the data doesn't lie if you, if you don't manipulate it. Um, and what's the external landscape? Like what is happening in this landscape that you have to put there, but then, and then what are some of the best practices, but how do you think outside the box? And one thing I will say about social capital is that, and if you ask our clients, they will say, we, we, with them are original thinkers. Like we will give the best practices because we've know, we know them. We've been in the movie. We sort of in the streets with our clients, not just studying the industry, but we're out there supporting them and growing in the industry together. But I do think um, everything we do and everything that makes something great is is not taking any shortcuts and still going through a disciplined approach to analyze things and and um, make recommendations. And then um, with us, we work alongside and help our clients execute. Um, it's really about thinking outside the box and um, you know, building the, bringing to the table what works and best practices, but thinking about what's next and working outside of that, that as well. And I think that's what keeps me going and also keeps organizations fresh. And where we, where we are right now, Rick, is like, as we look at, um, you know, reflecting on the industry, you know, the whole thing in cause in working with causes is they all have missions to make the world a better place. And some organizations are on the relief side, like, you know, hunger relief or disaster relief. And some of those same organizations are on the resilience side of how do you build better structures and communities so that you mitigate um, a disaster and you have more community resilience or how do you solve hunger? And it's not just about relief, but it's also um, helping address the, the uh, helping people get out and stay out of hunger. And so we, we found like in COVID, I think we knew all along that um, some of the systems or that we were sort of marching in place and that there were, cracks in the society and sort of how things were working. And we were wondering, is that there going to be a crisis that's going to reveal it? And that's exactly what happened with COVID is it revealed the cracks in our society. And we're sort of at a point right now where this kind of original thinking and stepping back is, is really important because 
one of the things we realized, and this is something that I've shared at our conference that we do, is that, you know, the 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 problem is that the system isn't just broken. It was just it wasn't it was built for some of us, not all of us. And we have to restructure the system. And so now everybody's talking about this wonky systems change. But what it means is that, that when I look at where we are right now, we can't just build on the same. We're not going to sponsor our way out of problems and we're not going to program our way out of problems. A lot of the programs that companies are supporting and donors are supporting aren't really scalable. And we're going to have to really just change how we do business. And so it requires original thinking and it requires not just the nonprofits solving it or the corporations. It's really um, how are you going to change business practices and change policies and change mindsets and behavior. And those are things like, you know, JP Morgan Chase saying, we're no longer going to uh, require degrees for, uh, or, or we're going to change the rules so that we can hire people who have been imprisoned. And we're going to make it easier for the 70 million um, uh, people out there without degrees, like the organization we're working with, Opportunity Work, to be able to be seen for their skills, not necessarily the degrees that they couldn't afford or lack. And we're going to see more, um, you know, companies like P&G who are literally saying, I'm going to change how people think about, um, you know, different populations. And I'm not just going to change the face of what you see in my advertising, but I'm also going to change the supply chain and I'm, I'm going to change the supply chain and I'm going to um, make sure that the people producing the um commercials are representative of the people that we're showcasing. And so I think I think the big revelation I have is that everything is changing and we're going to need more companies, more uh, nonprofits, more partnership with the government, more people working together to change how things get done and not necessarily do it the old way. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I think sometimes marketers lie to themselves and think they create avalanches. The truth is society creates avalanches and marketers just snowboard them better maybe than other people. Yeah. But, you know, a <laughs> seismic change was the epiphany that's come out in the last three or four years of companies realizing that the era of everything being about rewarding the shareholder is over, that we had to broaden that to look at stakeholders and that stakeholders or shareholders clearly, I've talked a lot about this. Only profitable companies can give back. You got you got to make profits, so you've got to return value to shareholders. But you've got to take right. care of your people, and you've got to take care of your vendors, and you've got to take care of your community, and you got to take care of the world at large. And I, that was a seismic shift. And I think we've had we've seen a number of major CEOs of big Fortune 100 companies come together and say, hey, we're going to, through the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, we're now going to have a new edict. And that edict is it's no longer just about returning shareholder value. And what I worried about shareholder value was it was always measured in quarters. And and it was all about what's the stock going to look like this quarter? And in many cases, what do we do to manipulate our business to to gain value in the stock market? Well, the stock market's important, but it's it's not the most important thing, you know, what are you building to last? 
and how is your business going to benefit all of the people you serve? Um, and I think that's been the big, you know, shift. The second thing is in our business, you know, suddenly athletes woke up and suddenly athletic and sporting organizations said, wait, wait a minute, we, we, we have a platform here. We have the ability to do some things that can change our society. And that's what's got me excited. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, I'll be 68 in March. They said, how long are you going to keep doing this? I said, well, number one, I think you do what you want to do when you retire. This is what I like to do. I don't have any hobbies. I'm going to, you know, work till they carry me out in a pine box. But I want to work more on getting sporting and, and other organizations to figure out ways to help society. You know, and, and that's what y'all are doing now. Y'all are, y'all are looking at ways that companies can really do meaningful, non-perfunctory things. And I think that's a pretty exciting thing. Yeah, it is. It is exciting. And I think you're right about one, the stakeholder engagement and sort of the longer play. I think that nothing works if you don't like everybody. Businesses have to be successful, but there's enough evidence now that showing the longer play can, um, but it is working, and that the the um, um, from a financial standpoint and from building markets like uh, Glaxo Smith Klein um, talked about how they. Uh, they spoke at our conference a few years ago, and I was always moved by this. Um, you know, instead of sponsoring Save the Children and just, um, you know, underwriting their programs, and this is a credit to Save the Children, the two of them came together and looked at they needed to invent a better um, uh product and delivery um, with antibiotics to to um the developing countries and with the expertise of save the children, they learned that um, they needed to um, develop a product that didn't require refrigeration and was in smaller packets so that the women could like carry them and to sort of really understand the market conditions. And instead of a typical program underwriting sponsorship, they leveraged the expertise of save the children and they actually were able to deliver more life-saving medicine to people that they were trying to serve. And in doing so, um, GSK was able to sort of develop, they literally gave, um, delivered the product at like nonprofit pricing and in some cases, you know, donated it. Um, but what it is doing is helping them build um, a more market share in these emerging countries. So, I think that people thinking at the long haul and how to build an economy where everybody wins and everybody benefits and it's not necessarily, it's not handing out, it's building markets that, that, um, can, can, um, you know, grow and thrive. And so I feel like that's how the world is changing a bit is, um, we're moving from like handouts and hand ups to people working together and partnering. And I think that there's this big, uh, reckoning that the people closest to the problem can help solve the problem and that we need to really look at how we bring people in and have the right people at the table to solve the problem. Yeah. I tell Um, people, I tell people all the time, if you're the smartest person in the room, 
you're in the wrong room. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I applaud the fact that both organizations in this case said the other can bring value here. Um, and we, you know, we understand the ability to deliver the vaccines. They understand how to make the vaccines. And, right. and, and, and there was no competitiveness in that. They, they were both very synergistic in what they were doing. Paul, I saw the recently on a 60 minutes, a wonderful uh, cause story around the Diana Fossey. Oh, I uh, just saw it. Yeah, <laughs> we were watching it last night yeah, with my family. Yeah, and what I loved about that, there was a big lesson here. The lesson was, you know, we all we all assume, you know, why don't these people change? <laughs> you know, don't these people understand they got to protect gorillas? Well, no, these people need to feed their families. <laughs> this, you get up every morning and say, what do I got to do to make sure my children eat? And that and and that that becomes number one. So if you don't address that problem, you can't get to the other problem. And yet that was such a great example of looking in the entire ecosystem and saying, how do we protect mountain gorillas in a way that's going to benefit those that live within that ecosystem, the human beings that live there? I was fascinated by that story. And I thought, man, there are some lessons here. That so we, many, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I just on that point, it just it shows like the convergence of how everything comes together. You know, who would have thought that the scientists and how it affects the economy, and you saw the government working together with um, you know business and the community, and I, I think it's so. Um, and you talked about how. Um, you know, sports is coming in. I, I think that the, the problem is, is everybody's trying to solve these problems by themselves. But if we're going to go from um, really solving any of these problems, it's going to require a different kind of collaboration and different entities coming together and sort of being in the same movie to try and not solve one thing alone. So here's like, everybody coming together from the science community to business to the citizens. And um, I, I think it's, that's really complicated in the, the one single ingredient in getting this done is leadership. It's, I always, that one big lesson I have, because I'm literally a fundraiser at heart. That's what I do is raise funds, but really at social capital, we help um, generate, more funds to generate greater impact. And we lead with generating greater impact. And if you get your partners at the table to say, how are you going to solve this problem? Then you, you say, who needs to be in the room to solve the problem? And then your agenda is not sort of borne by like, how can I improve my brand and raise more money to pay for my infrastructure? It's more like you're really working from the framework of how are we going to solve the problem? Who needs to be at the table? And um, you approach it that way. And, and when you see, you know, sort of these transformational outcomes, it's because we've gone from transactional ways of doing business to more transformational ways. Well, that's the, I think that's a great point. It, 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 it's we, we have looked at being transactional. And that doesn't work. <laughs> and so we've now moved from transactional to transformative. And, and that's, that's a different mindset. It's been really fascinating for me to watch in the college ranks. Last week, 
the 59th Division I AD retired, okay? 59 in one year coming wow. out of COVID. You know why? It just got hard. Yeah. <laughs> it got hard. And to solve the kinds of problems and create the kinds of opportunities that y'all are doing, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And it takes, like you said, leadership, collaboration, and it takes thinking differently. It takes different skill sets than we've been utilizing in the past. And, you know, one of the things I think about your career is you've been a lifetime learner. If you think about your entire path to where you are today, every day you've gotten up and said, how do I transform what we're doing here in order to meet the needs of society and the world at large today, today? Because today's different than it was five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago. And so I applaud you by staying what I call contemporary in your ability to change and your ability to lead change for some of these organizations, some of these charities that, you, that have been around for decades, if not centuries, <laughs> um, and, and, and be able to, to get them to understand you, you can't do it like you used to do. It, it, you just can't. Uh, and and I, I think there's a lot of people that where well, we struggle as a society in America is we want it to be like it used to be. Well, it ain't ever going to be that way. Yeah. So, so get over it and move on. True. And I, I think, you know, with a lot of um, people coming up in their career and, and young people saying, you know, they're working in large organizations and sometimes they have amazing bosses and sometimes they're kind of not so amazing. Um, one thing I think that is a through line for me and, and a big aha as, um, you know, what I'm seeing in the space and is that you can, you, you don't have to have the title and you don't have to be in CSR or ESG or any of these, um, you know, positions where it's your title to be in charge of, you know, corporate citizenship or sustainable impact. You can do a lot from your seat and you can be like, uh, a Sophie Cruz or uh, Greta Thunberg, you can be um, a big name activist, or you can be an everyday person um, that can make change in terms of how you how you treat one person and how you change one mindset. We, change can happen, and it requires that it happens from your seat. And everybody has power within their seat. Um, and so I, I, I do think that it does, that, that the future, you know, in front of us is learning how, how to take what power you do have or what you have within your control and, and trying to sort of, you know, what, what I may be doing, like hanging a banner <laughs> might be very transactional, but there's things around me that can sort of be leading towards something. And so I, I just, I feel like the, one thing in the um, that really matters is how you take um, what you do and look for opportunities like multitask so that you're looking for how to put matter into sometimes you need those everyday things. And I don't know if it was um, um, one of my favorite people is a guy named Kabir Kumar from Walmart. And we do a lot with Walmart. They support a lot of um, the causes we work with and, 
if you look closely at what they've done over the years in terms of systems change and, you know, anything from the environment to um, uh, working to change, um, you know, issues around, you know, every issue they're at the forefront of um, and say what you will about their past. They're really doing some internal uh, work and they, they are looking at, it's not like some big, um, you know, one big systems change. It's like 57 things all at the same time. And just like making different changes within your control, I think makes such a huge difference. Well, I'm reminded of a story by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, uh, little boys walking on a beach one day and there are thousands of starfish that have washed up on the beach and he's picking them up and throwing them back in the water. And a man comes to the little boy and says, son, there are thousands of starfish on this beach. You can't possibly be making a difference. And the little boy picks up one and throws it in the water and says, well, I made a difference to that one. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And, and, and really, th- th- we, all, we all can find a way to give back. All of us. And when you do that, it multiplies. It, 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 it just does. You know, <laughs> Warren Buffett made a fortune on compound interest. I, I'm, I'm convinced there's a thing called compound kindness. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm just convinced of it. And, and we don't know. And I think one day we're going to get, you know, wherever we're going, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to see the quilt. And we're going to go, man, I did that and that led to that. And I never knew that led to that. <laughs> But I did something for someone here that then did something phenomenal for somebody else. And I really think when you look at your quilt and the charities that you've worked with and the programs that you've developed with them, the, the impact is going to be staggering. But, you know, we're all in the, in the forest. <laughs> you know, we're all in there day to day and we kind of don't see the horizon. We don't see the fruits of the labor. But I know that there are lots of them there. Well, um, what you, I do, I do feel like, um, most people, including myself, don't feel like every day is hard. (laughs) So you don't feel like, oh my, you don't have that loving feeling like, oh my God, I'm changing the world. And actually you sort of start out hoping that you will, and then you go through, you know, what feels like you aren't, but, um, we had, um, we do this conference every year, um, it's, it's uh, just for practitioners in the space that are um, paving the way. I mean, about 20 years ago, I started the business. About 13, 14 years ago, I realized our clients are smarter than most consultants, and they were paving the way by themselves. Like, they were really making the playbook, and it's isolating. And so we decided to put together this conference, which is invite-only for the top, you know, people in the space that are um, working in this area of social impact and it's corporations, um, foundations and causes coming together and having not like, here's my case study and beating their chest, but here's what's new and next and what's, what's, you know, working and what's challenging and just very candid, honest exchanges of what's going on. And we had, we have amazing speakers. We don't pay anybody to come. They come because they're off the circuit and they, they're just like giving back to the community and they don't, they're not doing it to sort of, um, you know, for PR purposes, they just are genuinely part of the community. 
And Westmore was our keynote about two years ago, and he he was the head at the time of the Robin Hood Foundation, which is the largest poverty fighting organization in in New York. And um, he basically pretty much gave the message to everybody in the room that was like, what are you doing? You're in your seats. You don't should you should just like go along to get along. Um, don't play it safe. You know, you just have to take your seat and do what you can. And it's not okay to to play it safe. And he basically gave a call to action to our community to say, like, you need to do more. And the next day we have a second day where it's just the nonprofits come together and um, it was really inspirational. There was one woman, her name's Nancy Kirby. She stood up and she's like, um, the one thing we can do together is to get out the vote and get out the vote, not like, um, you know, Republican or Democrat, but we just need to get out the vote because if we're going to like impact the world, we have to impact policies. And so our little community got, you know, got together and sort of worked together through the the, you know, the rest of the year, we had help from our friends from, you know, ACLU and League of Women Voters to say, here's what you need to do to get your policies, whether it's, you know, animal welfare or, you know, policies at the state level, national level. We we basically just literally on a volunteer basis saw people in our community try and do more together. And I just feel like it's not it's it's just little things, and I I just think it's individually first, and then collectively. How do you look up and figure out how to prioritize and do more together? Yeah, how do you compound and uh, compound? Yes, yeah, and and it took one woman standing up in your conference. That's where it started. Hey, we can do better. We can do this together. We can do this. Who you know, kind of who's with me? And there were a lot of people that were doing that. You listen, we could talk for hours, <laughs> hours and hours and hours, but I think I want to close with this. We have all got the ability to help other people. That's it. We have we all have that ability at every level and like Nike, we just need to do it. <laughs> we just need to do it and y'all are leading that and I'm very very proud of what you've built and I'm really proud of the successes that you've had. But I also know you've got a lot of really cool things that are going to happen in the future. And I can't thank you enough for Paula for being with us today from the bridge. Well, thank you, Rick. And thanks for being a mentor to so many of us. Appreciate that. Thanks again. Sometimes actions speak a whole lot louder than words from the soapbox. Another tradition of Christmas and the holiday season is the Salvation Army. Thousands of volunteers stand outside, sometimes in the cold and in the rain, and ring those Christmas bells to raise money for those less fortunate. The bells and the hanging kettles are a great sight to hear and to see. The Salvation Army was founded in 1865 in London by a minister named William Booth. The goal then and now is to bring salvation to the poor, destitute, and hungry by meeting both their physical and spiritual needs. They renamed the organization the Salvation Army in 1878. The first U.S. chapter 
was in 1880 in Pennsylvania. The famous Red Kettle fundraising campaign began in 1891 for the poor people in San Francisco to give them a free Christmas dinner. The Salvation Army raises millions annually to feed and clothe people and to provide disaster relief. We're now rapidly becoming a cashless society where people carry no dollar bills and no coins. With that in mind, it might be a great time to write them a check and give them a tax-deductible donation to the Salvation Army. And that's my Christmas view from the soapbox. Eating out during the Christmas season is a fun thing to do. Restaurants are decorated, and in some cases, fires are blazing. One of the traditions we love is the Feast of the Seven Fishes, the traditional Christmas Eve dinner for Italians. Multi-generation Italian families would first go to Mass and then return home for a traditional feast of seven fish and seafood dishes. Now, we host an annual version of this during the Advent season with some of our neighbors. But if you don't want to go to trouble, then head to Trattatoria Luca in Charleston, South Carolina. In the past, Chef Ken Verdrinsky has served a wonderful feast of seven fishes during the holiday season. He serves seven courses of amazing Italian specialities, served along with Italian wines and dessert and coffee. Now, unfortunately, Ken had to close the restaurant during COVID, but hopes to open again soon. This year, why don't you make plans to host your own Feast of the Seven Fishes or head to either Trattatore Luca in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, or find your own Italian restaurant serving this amazing traditional meal on the road with Rick. Let me close with a sad note about one of my favorite restaurants that we've talked about a lot from the bridge. One of my favorite restaurants in New Orleans is the Upper Line Restaurant. They've closed for good because of COVID. Longtime owner-operator Joanne Clevenger had just decided that at age 82, it's just too hard to start all over. I'm going to miss that restaurant. It was one of my very favorite places. More importantly, I'm going to miss seeing Joanne. She would show up in the same red outfit. She had a whole series of those in her closet with a pin, and she would make you feel like you were the most special person there. And isn't that what the holiday season's all about? I want to thank my friend Paula Bearson for a terrific show today and to all of you out there for listening. We'll be back with a special series-ending show next week from the bridge. Merry Christmas to you and to yours. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be.